0: Welcome to episode two of Hunkering Down, now on the campaign trail. I'm recording this Sunday night after a fun weekend at a horse show for Ella Joyce. But before um, we got to that, I had recorded a couple of interviews with some Jacksonville politicos. I have uh, Michael Binder of the University of North Florida. He's got some great new polling numbers out on the RNC and Donald Trump's uh, approval rating in this important county. And then we speak with Nate Monroe, one of the brightest stars in Florida journalism. He is a columnist for the Florida Times Union. He has been covering the hell out of a newsy town, including a scandal with an effort to privatize that utility up there, JEA, and now it's big pivot into hosting the RNC. And then in consultant's corner... We go back to an old familiar Steve Bancor. A lot of deep diving on a variety of races. But we talk a little bit about the vote-by-mail issue, which continues to be one of the, like, lingering issues of this election cycle. What's going to happen? We keep looking at um, elections take place, and we see long lines, and we wonder what's going to happen. And President Trump, you know, tweeting against voting-by-mail, but if you if you... You know, made your bones in Florida politics over the last 25 years. You know that the Republican Party of Florida won its majorities basically by dominating voting by mail. So it's an interesting uh, contradiction that has been set up. Um, so let's first talk with uh, Dr. Binder about his poll numbers. Then we'll get into uh, Nate and Steve. <music> Okay, joining us now uh, on basically the campaign trail is um, Mike. Is it Dr. Michael Binder?
1: Binder, but yeah.
0: Um, which means he spent a lot of time in school uh, studying these things, and so when you hear about a political scientist, uh, this is actually one of them. This isn't just somebody who, like me, who just throws out numbers and things like that. And often my polls don't add up to hundred. I guarantee you that uh, <laughs> the doctor's polls, they add up to 100 at some point. How are you this morning?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, So you've kind of built the Public Opinion Research Lab um, kind of into a, I don't want to say a juggernaut, but in a state that really, you know, we don't have like a, a Siena College or anything like that. You've turned your shop into kind of, you know, one of the two or three uh, most reputable polling outfits people trusted a lot. I know there's a lot of flim flammers. We'll get into that in a bit. But you guys are kind of uh, you guys are I don't want to say the gold standard because I don't want to overstate it. But you guys are you guys are up there.
1: Well, well, thank you. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. One thing that I, I think is really important for, for the work that we've been doing is that we get it right methodologically. Uh, you know, you mentioned my training a little bit, and I'm one of those folks, and I don't know that this applies to all political scientists, but I, but I care a lot less about what the outcome is as opposed to the process of getting there. I don't necessarily, I mean, obviously, I have my own political beliefs, and I vote, and, and I have preferences on issues, but uh, when, when it comes to the work that we do and the data that we produce, I want to get it right much more than I want to get a particular answer.
0: All right, so you had a poll out uh, this week, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring you on, um, about the Republican National Convention coming to Jacksonville. I can't imagine how many media hits you're going to do over the next um, 60 days. Just, to, I mean, as one of the go-to political scientists in Jacksonville, um, we probably need to get you some sort of agent so you can sort through. Of- <laughs> Uh, the inquiries you're going to get, but what did that poll say? What were the highlights?
1: Well, I think the biggest one, and this is not necessarily a surprise to folks that have been paying attention, is Jacksonville voters aren't particularly excited about the prospect. Fifty-eight percent of voters in Jacksonville are either somewhat or strongly opposed, and of that fifty-eight percent, forty-seven are strongly opposed to the prospect of bringing. You know 15 to 30,000 people from across the country and stuffing them into a tiny little arena for a couple of days uh, and it makes a lot of sense right this is you know in the times of a, a global pandemic uh, particularly in the last couple of weeks here in Jacksonville we've had spikes we've had some high-profile uh, positive tests at some local beach bars and restaurants and you know, it's, it's, it's not shocking that people are a little bit wary of what's going to come in a couple of months.
0: Um, uh, you know, when I got this, because there was a second poll that was out this week by uh, Republicans against Trump, uh, and they basically had some of the, the same directional results that you did, that Jacksonville folks um, don't want the convention there. Does it matter? Um, you know, it's like, I bet you if I polled my neighborhood— and ask whether or not Steve should have a house party on Saturday night um, and that it's going to take up a lot of parking and it could go a little late. I bet you the nine out of the 10 houses around him are going to say no, but that, that's not going to keep Steve from having his party.
1: It's not going to keep Steve from having his party unless Steve is concerned about his relationships with his neighbors. And while Steve might not care, uh, elected officials that are ultimately going to be facing reelection at some point Probably should care what the voters say It might not matter necessarily directly for in this case mayor curry's election because he's in his second term and he'll be termed out But most folks that are in the know suspect he's going to go on to higher office These are the types of decisions that could potentially cause problems for him in general elections <clears throat> now I don't wanna stand here and say that universally Jacksonville is opposed to this because Republicans are by and large, very supportive of it. It's just everybody else who has some real problems with it. In fact, 80% of Republicans are like, yeah, I, I support this idea, uh, let, let's bring the convention here. Uh, but Democrats are at 90% opposition and, and even the MPAs and, and other parties are, are at 62% opposition.
0: Um. I I wonder, and i got to do a little more research on this, have people polled about about their convention coming to town before? Um, Like, I wonder what the baseline is. Like, you know, it was a little interesting in Tampa in 2012, which I'm familiar with. You know, you had a very Democratic mayor, Bob Buckhorn, having to basically play host to the Republican National Convention. Um, And, you know... some people think he went a little bit overboard on the security. Uh, not and and that it wasn't the best event. I just wonder um, what is in good times what the baseline would be. Is it a is it a partisan thing? Do people take civic pride even if you're you're a moderate Democrat? You still like the idea of a convention uh, coming? You know, I wonder. Have you seen any other polling like that?
1: It's a great question. It's a question. I don't have an answer to uh, mostly because I think it's assumed and Again, you know a lot of cities are concerned about economic development and tourism dollars for a host of reasons Particularly hotel taxes. Uh, I know that we work with our our local visit Jacksonville Organizations heavily on economic impact for visiting events and there's a, a great benefit to the city particularly if you can get some positive press nationally. Uh, I don't know that folks have I'm, I'm guessing somebody has somewhere, but I haven't seen it either. Uh, This was just such a a shocking turn of events over the last month, obviously, with everything that's happening, but how the convention left Charlotte. Usually these things are literally years in the making and planning uh, to just kind of turn on a dime and, and come so quickly against, you know, what a lot of public health professionals are suggesting is the best way to go. Uh, we thought it was important to ask what, you know, the, the city thought, because the mayor's office was playing one paradigm and, and telling one story. Local media was telling a different story. We we wanted to see where the actual folks sat on this issue.
0: I, I, um, I look down the rest of the poll and I see that um, you did some job approval numbers on uh, what Duval voters thought of other politicians. Um, what did that look like?
1: Well, so, so speaking locally, uh, we'll start there and, and work our way up, I suppose, is uh, Lenny Curry. He's our mayor. He's in his second term. He just got reelected uh, back in May of 19, or actually in the first election in 19. It was March of 19. He won as the, the initial race. He has generally had pretty positive job approval ratings. He's always been above water We've got him at 45% approval, but for the first time we have him underwater with 49% negative job approval disapproval if you will and that I Think is probably a subject to a series of events that have happened here in the last several months most notably there was an effort spearheaded by the mayor's office to sell our public utility uh, it was wildly unpopular and is now being investigated by the feds so that probably contributes to some of this but also uh, the mayor's role in bringing the convention here i'm sure has angered some democrats and he hasn't always been uh, the most open or transparent of mayors since he's been in office and I think some of those things have, have led to some of the, these turn in his numbers. Uh, the other things that, that I thought were, were kind of interesting locally before we you know, talk about some of the bigger national or, or statewide issues is our Sheriff Mike Williams. He, we asked his. we've been traditionally asking the Sheriff's job approval. We're a consolidated city. Our Sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer, both of the city and of the county. He has 44% job approval and only 37% disapproval. So he's net positive, which when you look at some of the other questions we were asking about police relations in the community is a little bit surprising. But uh, for somebody that cares about the city and, and wants things to work, I think those are good signs that, that our sheriff is, is net positive.
0: You know, I look at the, um, the Trump number and, you know, 61% disapproval. Um, which will lead into like a little bit of a larger conversation about where you think Trump is at the, in the polls. I guess one—I don't want to say Duval is a bellwether because it's not as evenly divided enough to be a bellwether. But I don't think Donald Trump can win Florida, even if let's take ten points off of that. Let's go to you know uh, fifty six. He can't win Florida with those kind of numbers.
1: Um, out of Duval? Uh, Duval is a changing city. And I think it's, you know, we've historically had either the conservative Democrats or Republicans have been in power for for a fairly long time here. In 2016, we were plus three D on registration. That translated to a plus one turnout on election day. As we sit today, we are plus six D. So even if you have that, you know, four-point advantage for Republicans, Democrats are in all likelihood gonna turn out at greater numbers than Republicans will this election in November. And that's gonna be hard for Donald Trump to win Duval. It might not be a 10-point margin. In fact, I don't suspect it will be. Uh, But I I think uh, Donald Trump is gonna have a very difficult time winning Jacksonville, uh, even if things turn around a little bit for him uh, elsewhere in the state.
0: I think the thing with uh, the convention at this point is, I think best case scenario is you get through it and nothing bad happens.
1: And, oh, that's absolutely the best case scenario.
0: Right? Is that yeah? That I mean, it's not like it's almost a thankless job. I know a lot of the like staff that's starting to organize and things like that. It's not going to be some celebration. Maybe, uh, did I, did I mute you? Okay. Maybe outside of, uh, the Amelia Island Ritz, which I'm still pissed about that I'm not going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to get a room over there at a, at that time of year. Um,
1: yeah, you're going to be at the motel six on Phillips highway. <laughs>
0: right. I know. <laughs> we actually, that's our favorite spot. We go over there end of, uh, end of summer, um, you know, try and get a steak at salt. Um, and that ain't happening right now. Um, what do you think about when you when you see uh, the Trump numbers that you see, but then you see the numbers out of the New York Times last night. Uh, you know, Trump, I think he's down 14 points. I ain't buying that. And if I see Trump down six in Florida, that means he's even, because I just feel like the Democratic get-out-the-vote operation isn't as strong as Republicans. I mean, are we right to still be skeptical about Polling involving Donald Trump or has there been enough of a course correction out of the pollsters to that? We're getting good numbers now
1: well, so uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of a disclaimer we were actually part of that New York Times Siena project uh, and the data that that's coming out on Thursday That deals with the battleground states, We called Florida for them so I don't wanna sit here and bash what uh, my okay. friends at Siena are doing. And I, and I do wanna let folks know that, that we're a part of that. The The role of, of polling in 2020 is obviously a lot different than it was in 2016. And I think that a lot of polling organizations, certainly the more reputable ones, have, have corrected a, a, a great deal. Now, that being said, and I will tell this all the time, uh, People think about polling numbers as really precise scalpel type events. Oh, hey, it's 40, you know, it's 50 to 36. It's exactly 14 points. You know, these are rough estimates. Uh, they're rough estimates at a point in time. There's margins of error around them for real reasons. On top of that, it's June in the middle of a pandemic when we really haven't had much campaigning going on. And when people are staring at all the bad things that are happening, unemployment numbers, the economy, uncertainty about a global pandemic, health, security. And you're looking at Donald Trump, who does his regular putting his foot in his Twitter mouth on a daily basis, it seems. Suddenly you're like, yeah, that other person is much better when you finally get to see who that other person is, suddenly it becomes a one-to-one comparison. Those numbers are going to close. That gap is going to close, even among registered voters. And that's the other piece of this. A lot of these polls right now are doing registered voters, which have a D advantage. Likely voters look much more Republican. So that needs to be considered as well. So, So yes, I think we can trust the polls, but you have to trust them in what they're doing. These are not election predictions at this point.
0: I I do think if if I am Trump world and Tony Fabrizio is as good a pollster as there is, if I'm looking at a national poll that has me down 14, even if I have that, I'm still like I'm shaking up staff. I'm doing something differently. I don't know that Trump as a candidate can do things differently. I don't know uh, if he'll do that. But boy, if I'm Jared Kushner and I'm running the campaign, I try and I, I, I realize that there's just something not working right now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see um, where he's going. How often do you all poll? Is there a, is there a set schedule that you follow? I mean, how does that work for like an institute like yours?
1: So uh, unfortunately, we don't really have a set schedule. We've been trying to get to one. The problem is real life keeps getting in the way. Yeah. Uh, and you know, big events happen locally that that cause us to do things around town or you know, geez, global pandemics happen and force us to close our shop and and transition to an online environment. Uh, So those are all things that will move us around and get us out of what our ordinary schedule would happen to be.
0: Um, Any other thoughts uh, before we let you go? I know you got your dog going. My dog is actually listening to your dog and would love uh, my two pups would like to meet your dog. Listen, this is what I – we started, and the podcast is literally called Hunkering Down, and I think it was like the third interview. I was doing a pod with a PR person, and their child came in, and I've got Ella, my child, running around. You just kind of let it go. I mean, it's not – we just know that at this point, we are all just trying to get by at this point. That's the way not- it is.
1: Uh, yeah, my, my daughter Piper, she made an appearance on the radio yesterday. Right. Uh, she just likes to say hi to people.
0: Ella Ella kind of almost expects it. She'll say, she's like, do you mind if I come on? And I'm like, you know, normally like a year ago, I would be all tense and like, oh my gosh, it's a uh, national media. I got to do and like, now it's like, yeah, come on over. Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm in no. my room. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on, explaining the poll. Hopefully, uh, you know, the next time you've got another poll, we will get you back on and we can talk more about whatever numbers you're looking at. Um, the next time around, I'm. I think it's going to be. I'm facing the same dilemma you are. I don't know what's going to change between now and like August. You know, in terms of like the political, um, the political sphere. I mean, I think it's just going to be this really horrible slog. You know, we're going to have a lot of coronavirus cases. We're going to have a lot of protests. I don't know that that necessarily. I think that's all baked in now. Um, and
1: I don't know, I I think the one thing, and I say one thing, you know, literally anything can happen and fundamentally change this world as we found out the last few months. But, you know, if if somebody really big gets sick, like a Trump or a Pence or a Biden, or there's an announcement about who that VP candidate's going to be. Um, those are things that that can move the race and, and, and get, you know, people, shifting some of their ideas about who or what they might do come Election Day.
0: Well, cool. Thank you very much, Dr. Mike Binder of the University of North Florida Public Opinion Laboratory.
1: Research Lab.
0: Research Lab. It's a cool name. Um, We appreciate you coming on today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Have a good one.
0: Okay, I really dug that interview with Mike Binder. I got to tell you, I think he's going to be a frequent guest on this pod as we go through the election cycle um there are not a lot of independent pollsters in florida that i think you can that you can trust um you know i think some of the other names like gravis and saint leo's i think their numbers are ridiculous the best polling is the private polling um ryan tyson steve Vancor tom edel eldon uh but a lot of times those numbers aren't public and so uh we the only public public numbers we get are from people that don't understand. Um, and there's little Dolly Parton barking at us. Um, it's from people who don't necessarily necessarily understand Florida, like Quinnipiac, and I think to a certain extent, Mason Dixon. So we're going to be talking to him more. Um, staying in the Jacksonville lane, we're going to talk to Nate Monroe of the Florida Times-Union. But first, a word from our sponsors and from Dolly Madison. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org slash COVID for more information. Okay, this is a um, this is going to be an interesting pod. Uh, we have, I think, arguably one of the best pound for pound reporters uh, working in Florida right now, um, Nate Monroe of the Florida Times Union. He um, he covered um, a whole breadth of issues and then moved into a columnist's role. But with that, it's kind of it's kind of like the the columnists of days gone by where. He's setting an agenda. There's original reporting in it. Um, it, He's got a great perch and platform in what is really a great news town right now. Um, And he and his band of compatriots um, are, you know, with sticks and bubble gum, um, you know, covering the hell out of a city that seems to, you know, be at the center of a lot of the statewide debates, whether it be coronavirus reaction and now they've landed the uh rnc convention so that pops them right in the middle of the 2020 circus and so um i really i, I, I switch over usually we're going to be doing florida politics reporters but some polling came out today and i wanted to reach out to nate Monroe and uh, get his take on a few things so nate how are you
2: i'm doing good man thanks for having me on
0: uh first time caller uh long-time listener big fan of yours uh right so even though this is audio I got to ask what are the sketch drawings behind you uh, that are in this uh, because we're taping on Skype uh, because it's easier for me to record so I can see Nate what's going on in the background there
2: Uh, so those are um, they're like posters from annual uh, blessings of the fleet in Ocean Springs Mississippi my my girlfriend's from Ocean Springs and um, I'm actually from Slidell which is right outside New Orleans so we're both uh, Gulf Coast kids and uh, the blessing of the fleets, just it, it's a big deal in a lot of um, kind of bayou communities. Uh, and so they make nice wall art too.
0: Yeah, they really do. That's a uh, now I'm looking at it and I'm definitely getting a beginning of the perfect storm kind of uh, <laughs> feel uh, for uh, the uh, big boats with nets on. Now I got it. All right. Um, <laughs> did I get your description right? I mean, uh, introduced, not introducing to our statewide audience, but for those of, uh, those of our readers who don't know, um, you want to explain who you are, what you've been doing at the FTU, et cetera?
2: Sure, man. I mean, other than uh, being, I think, overly kind, uh, I think you, you, you were pretty accurate. Um, I came to the Times Union in 2013 as a reporter, and uh, I have really covered City Hall um, the entire time since then that I've been here. Uh, I did become a columnist in January 2019, and so I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. Um, and to your point, I do try to mix uh, original reporting in with uh, my opinion, which uh, it's you know it's been really fun to be able to kind of pop off on stuff that um, you know you kind of see as a reporter and you have to hold back. And um, so it's it's been a really fun uh, year and a half.
0: It's funny when
2: I do that, I'm a blogger.
0: But when you do it, you know you're a columnist, and it's it's interesting um, the labels that we put on people in the media and so forth. And I actually, I, I kid you not, I was thinking last night because um, we had two stories that kind of went national. We had a story about the Duval about the Duval voters' reaction to the RNC, and then uh, a coronavirus story. They were on. it was on Morning Joe, and so I was like, I was just thinking like. What, what are we, what is Florida politics? And we had a lot of stuff last night. Like we covered, you know, the governor of course signed 25, 23 bills at like eight 30 at night. And so, you know, the young pups, man, they got on the, uh, you know, they got on the Slack channel and started dividing it up. It was kind of, you know, it's not, I don't know if there's a difference between writing about it at eight 30 or writing about it at eight 30 AM, but you know, these are important pieces of legislation, the Ocoee riots legislation, Uh, you know, uh, there was legislation that is going to keep pregnant women from being put into solitary confinement. I can't believe that that is even possible. But so we we got into that, um, and I was just thinking, you know, there's nothing wrong with a blogger. And, like, what you're doing I think is great. Like, I look at Ben Smith at the New York Times, like, now that he's got his media column there. Original reporting, but definitely some some hard edges. And what you've done with the JEA stuff has been—I mean, you've set the agenda over there. You know, when you're setting your columns, um, what do you think is the biggest difference from working that beat and writing that column?
2: Um, it probably is the the ability to kind of—I mean, I don't want to say that I'm I'm like deliberately out to to set an agenda, but it is different to be able to kind of tell readers up front, like, hey, this is this is really important. You know, I mean, that was kind of the, the I mean, if anything made a difference with the JEA stuff, it was just that I was able to get people's attention uh, to that issue. I mean, that was the real, if the paper had a contribution in any way, it was just getting people's, you know, kind of ears up and saying, hey, like this thing is probably gonna be sold, it's going to be a huge deal. Um, and so maybe it is just that maybe being in a position to, um, like I said, like set an agenda. I I want to be a little bit careful again because I, I don't want to make people think that that's that's like what I'm out to do. I, you know, at, at the end of the day, the you know writing these columns it really is as simple as uh, writing what I think. Um, you know some you know some of my my critics think that there are all these like motivations behind it, and it's it's really not anything complicated it's just that you know we live in an active newsy town and uh there's just a lot of stuff to have an opinion on
0: Uh, and i don't i'll I'll get i'll let you off the hook here by saying i don't think that you necessarily have an agenda i think when i say you're setting the agenda it's like i think folks especially in your very political city they say hey have you seen what nate monroe um, wrote today you know Scott Maxwell still has that kind of gravitas. You know, right now, quite honestly, I don't know that the Tampa Bay Times has that. And I'm not dogging on anybody. I just they just uh, switched over to Stephanie Hayes, who's a great writer who I really like. Um, and I, I I wouldn't be surprised if she becomes that kind of columnist. But it's definitely where you know your column gets forwarded around. You got to stop it. All right, where is Nate at this week in reaction to? whatever the news du jour is. So, but no, I don't think that you're coming. Now, I will say, and I want I want you to be able to address this, not that you're the spokesperson for the Florida Times Union, uh-huh. your critics are gonna say, and not just your critics, but critics of the newsroom are gonna say, man, the FTU has really dug in against Lenny Curry. Um, and that, especially over the last, I guess maybe over the last year, which has kind of been simultaneous with you being a columnist, you know, you want to knock that
2: down? Well, I mean, I, every mayor uh, in the city's modern history has, at some time or another, butted heads with the newsroom. Um, our editor, Mary Kelly Polka, she uh, covered the John Payton administration, uh, which was uh, now two administrations ago. And, uh, you know, she and Payton sort of had what I understand to be, like, prolific um, feuds over news coverage, um, you know, the Alvin Brown administration, uh, the Democrat who preceded Lenny Curry, you know, we had a lot of tough conversations with his administration. I mean, I was a reporter here then. Um, and people thought, like, I remember when Lenny was running for mayor, uh, the new the thing to say about the newsroom then was that we were uh, anti-Alvin Brown. Um, you know, I think it's convenient for people in elected office to kind of say that the newsroom is against them. It's kind of a scapegoat for, uh, you know, maybe news coverage reflecting reality. You know, the Lenny Curry has, uh, to a shocking degree, affiliated himself with just really unpopular things. Like he wanted to sell the utility. That's just yeah. a super unpopular thing to do. And so I, I don't know why it's shocking that he wouldn't find himself in this really kind of controversial, unpopular position all the time. Like he does that to himself. Similarly in bringing the RNC to Jacksonville, which, you know, we'll talk about in a few minutes, but I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing what happens when you associate yourself with unpopular ideas, you tend to become unpopular. So, you know, I, the newspaper is going to scrutinize whoever holds that position. You know, the the mayor of Jacksonville has a lot of power in this town. Um, and, you know, we have a strong mayor form of government. And so, like, I, I won't apologize, and I don't think our, our editor or anyone in our newsroom would apologize for, you know, giving these people hell. That's, you know, that's fine.
0: I think, um, and I agree with who explained it to me, I think mayor of Jacksonville may be the second most powerful political job in Florida. Um, you, know, if you're, you know, Buddy Dyer doesn't have term limits in Orlando. And so that makes him super power. But he shares a lot of power with Orange County and with really with, you know, he doesn't have any oversight over Disney's, you know, governmental enclave. Um, But man, the the, the mayor of Jacksonville, you know, is in charge, basically, uh, even though there's boards, but he's in charge of a lot of stuff. Um, And, you know, which it's interesting to me also. And I don't know what the origin of of it is. You know, we've been blessed to have AG with us for now. I want to say like six years. And that's when I started really following Jacksonville politics. But, you know, outside of South Florida, which is so cutthroat and is just so tribal, man, Jacksonville's politics are sophisticated in the sense that it's so much more active. Like I look at the city of St. Petersburg and, you know, I'll see city council candidates raise $13,000 and get elected. You know, $13,000, you know, you pick that up at Marty Fiorentino's office for lunch, right? I mean, and so <laughs> yeah. I just don't see – there's just such a level of sophistication and activity in the politics over in Jacksonville.
2: What's interesting to me is that I think all of those things are true, uh, and yet the mayor of Jacksonville remains a pretty poor springboard to um, statewide office, uh, which is interesting because I yeah. think it does come with a lot of power and it's it's – I think a prominent position, but you know, it it is not proven to be a good uh, launching pad at all.
0: And that and Lenny is has run headlong into that. Um, you know, I'm, I I know that Brian Hughes and company will say that you know the governor's office was testing him out to be appointed for CFO, and I I think I was on the ground in Tallahassee that. That when that was supposedly happening, and I was told specifically that it was not, uh, that it was not, you know, yes, they may have, you know, walked him through it, but they were never going to empower someone like Lenny to, you know, to get that kind of position. Um, And Lenny just doesn't have, you know, everybody's like, well, what is he going to do next? He just doesn't have anywhere to go, really. I can't see him, you know, being Rutherford's successor. I mean, I just can't see him in D.C. and being satisfied with that. Um, and all the statewide stuff is locked up you know i mean he's not what is he going to do challenge jimmy patronus in a primary um and so i think that that i don't know if that's part of the frustration you know personally for him but i i feel like he just doesn't have anywhere to go after this and um i don't know maybe that's why he associates himself with you know, some unpopular ideas, like you said, the, the sale of JEA. Where is that investigation at, by the way, right now? Where, what's the status of that?
2: So um, there are, to my knowledge, there are at least three investigations going on. There is a city council investigative committee uh, that is looking at it. There is a, an inspector general's, uh, the inspector general's at least making some inquiries at JEA about various things. Um, And probably most importantly, uh, the uh, federal prosecutors are uh, examining the JEA sale debacle. So what I've been able to glean just from kind of talk, I mean, so the feds have been talking to people, interviewing them for months and months. Um, What I've been able to glean from people who have been spoken to is that Um, I mean, look, it's a real investigation. I don't think there is a grand jury seated at the moment hearing JEA stuff only because uh, there is a pandemic. And I don't think they're seating any grand juries for stuff like this right now. But my understanding is that there will be one. Um, And, you know, JEA received a federal grand jury subpoena for record. So, I mean, that's indicates that they're, you know, they're moving forward. I don't know what exactly it is that they're um looking at they've they've interviewed people about a few things and some of the details of that are probably uh a little bit too obscure for for the podcast, but um, you know, I they seem to be centering around some controversies uh that involved the uh fired CEO of JEA uh who was Lenny Curry's kind of preferred candidate for that position.
0: and I I know that we could do uh you could probably—I mean, not that anybody cares about a, the sale of an electrical company—but you could, you could do a book about that story because it was so, it was so long. Was hubris like the ultimate, you know, uh, doing in of these people? Because it just seems like—I mean, Herschel Vineyard, quite honestly, I, he's a friend of mine. He's a really nice man, like on a personal level, and to see his reputation now like kind of upside down. It's remarkable that, you know, anybody that was touched by that, I mean, I don't know, Aaron Zahn, you kind of, I mean, you could just see from the beginning, he was, you know, set up as a, as a patsy either to run the organization, you know, to push the sale through and then on the back end to take the blame for it not going through, but man, that it's just remarkable to me how that turned upside down.
2: Yeah. And I do think it was hubris. I mean, honestly, I think a defining characteristic of Lenny Curry's administration has been this belief that they can do whatever they want and it doesn't matter what the polling says and it doesn't matter what the newspaper says and what the cocktail sippers and the downtown business leaders say. Um, And and I think that they, the the JEA sale um, was that to an extreme, you know, we're going to, he, I mean, this really took off after uh, the mayor, you know, pretty convincingly won re-election. Didn't even have a Democratic opponent, um, you know. And I just think that they thought, you know, we're going to get this done. We've wanted to sell JEA for a long time, uh, you know. For a, for a Republican mayor running a cash-strapped city, you know, you offload one of the largest electric utilities in the United States. You get a huge windfall of cash that you can play with. You get this kind of this, uh, conservative credential, uh, that you've privatized this major government function. I mean, I can certainly see why they thought there was a lot of upside, but you know, they ran headlong into the fact that this has been tried many times in Jacksonville's history. It's never worked. It's always unpopular. There are 2000 people who work at JEA. A lot of them are Republicans. Uh, I mean, it's just, it just doesn't work. I mean, you know, people just don't want a private company running Jacksonville's electric and water service.
0: Yeah, they just, because I looked at it from afar and I, quite honestly, I was just like, who cares who your power company is? I mean, the bill comes and you got to pay it. And if they're promising that the bill is basically going to be the same, where do you care what the check goes to? And then, like, as I talk to people, it's just a, it's just an, it's a an, an issue of tradition and... Deep held belief. Like it is not uh it is not a dollars and cents kind of issue. It's just like, no, we are proud of our electric company. Uh, um, and yeah, I mean he ran into that buzzsaw. Okay, let's um let's pivot to the RNC because sure. to me it's like I don't know, I feel like everything is gonna come to a head at the RNC. Like I feel like it's like sixty-eight in Chicago in a lot of ways. You put this big target in what is going to be a hot bloody summer um, and said, Hey, we're all the Republicans and the president are going to be here. And we're in a County where there's a lot of African-Americans already. Um, It's easy to get from Atlanta. It's easy to get from other parts of the South. Uh, It's, you know, at the end of two interstates, I just feel like any protester worth their salt is going to be able to get down to Jacksonville. Um, Coronavirus, even if it started tilting down today at the same rate that it's gone up, we'd still be at 500, 600 cases. And that, and there's no reason right now to think that it's going to be, uh, that we're going to be flattened that way. We, we continue to go up this way. What the hell is Jacksonville thinking?
2: (laughs) That's a really good question. I, I mean, look, when these rumors started percolating and I think Politico was the first publication that, that kind of put this out there. Um, and you know, of course, the mayor was was eager early on to, to float this himself to people. Um, I was kind of in disbelief because even in ideal circumstances, the perfect circumstances, pulling off a major party convention in Jacksonville would be really difficult. Um, the city, the the for people who have not been here, there is a very, Jacksonville is a very nice skyline um, in downtown. Uh, but when you're actually in downtown, um, it it doesn't feel like it looks. Uh, you kind of wonder where all of the density is. Um, downtown has been a, a something that, that city leaders have struggled to revitalize for years and years. Um, we don't have many amenities in the core. We don't have a large convention center. We don't have a lot of hotel space. Um, you know, the, the city hosted the Super Bowl in 2005. It, it did not go super well. Um, one of the kind of infamous uh, kind of iconic images is uh, the city had to truck in um, cruise ships uh, to house uh, to make up for the lack of the hotel capacity. And so when I heard this initially, I was just kind of in disbelief and thought, like, how, this just doesn't seem right. I mean, Tampa struggled to host the rnc a few years ago and tampa is like a world-class convention city um so i you know again to get back to the idea of hubris and and sort of lenny curry's motivations i mean I, this really was a unilateral decision by the mayor's office as far as i can tell to pursue this uh, and i think jacksonville got it in large part because there were not many other cities actually willing to compete for it
0: yeah i um uh... I think we both know some of the people that were involved. I think it was kind of happenstance, how it came to be, you know, um, one of the stories that I kind of hear is that, um, you know, Charlotte starts blowing up. Um, and the right Jacksonville boosters were in the right room at the right time. And they said, Hey, Jacksonville, take it, you know, kind of, um, uh, and they said, you know, really? And so, and then, the, and they, I know this is going to hurt some people's feelings, but they said they didn't, the, the people said they didn't know who Lenny Curry was. Um, they, and it, I don't know that necessarily these people who make these decisions are supposed to know who the mayor of Jacksonville is, but they didn't realize that there was a Republican mayor in Jacksonville and a Republican state. Uh, and I, I trust the source. I don't want to out them, but that was what I was told. And then once they started doing their due diligence, it, it, it works out perfectly I will say, let's, I will say there is an upside. I think the people behind this, um, you know, are smart, capable, logistically um, savvy people, like the people that the Florida operatives that are involved right now. I think that they will be able to pull off some sort of convention. But at the end of the day, I don't think anybody's going to thank them for it. I think it's going to be, Like so many other things in Jacksonville right now, it may get done, but I don't know that anybody's going to be, I don't know that it's going to be a a happy love fest where people are going to feel warm and invited. I think if it runs through the Curry, Brian Hughes machine, I I feel like, yes, it will get done, but I don't know that it will be a a celebrated event for Florida Republicans.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't even know that in the, again, under ideal circumstances, I'm not even sure that these conventions end up being some part of some city's, like, success story over the years. I mean, so Bob Buckhorn did an interview with one of the local TV stations recently, and he said, look, like, these conventions are, that, you know, it takes years of planning, uh, you know, a lot of downtown businesses find that they, they are not the the... Sort of oasis of of business that they that they had hoped for. Um, They're complicated things to pull off, and then you know, other than political junkies, I mean, people don't know where these conventions take place. They're gonna forget. I mean, you could pull someone off the street and ask them where the last con- you know the DNC was in 2016, and you zero percent of people will, will know. Um, and so I. I think you know the the economic studies that there is like a hundred million dollar economic benefit that just feels like bullshit. The idea that the city is put up on a pedestal and showcased to the world seems like bullshit. I, I mean, I just don't know that the that the upsides even in the best case scenarios are really that high, and we are extremely far from a best case scenario. So yeah, it's possible it could go relatively okay. Um, you know, the and it seems to me the best case scenario is it happens, there isn't a huge amount of uh violence in the streets, uh, you know, who knows with coronavirus and then it goes and that's that and Jacksonville's still Jacksonville. I mean you know, to me that just it seems like a lot of risk to take on for that. If
0: I also all right, so the downside to this beyond the coronavirus, beyond the uh protesting is you you have a lot of the same players who were just involved with a scandalous, you know, JEA potential sale. Now you've given them um, $30, 40000000 million worth of contracts to, you know, dole out. And um, I'm going to leave it to you all at the Florida Times Union, you know, uh, to, you know, in fact, somebody said to me, the reason why Jacksonville was picked, uh, one of the reasons was is, it's a one-stop shop for all of the bidding that they expect or all of the permitting that they expect. No, none of the problems that will, that would go along with another city because you have a consolidated government and everything like that. Um, I, I just have this feeling come August, you're going to be writing a story about um, top donor to X is given Uh, no-bid contract for catering to Y, and you're going to be connecting a lot of dots come, you know, August and September.
2: (laughs) What I can say is that there is a very hard-earned lack of trust in city government. And so, uh, you know, we will certainly be doing our best to to keep track of that stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, um, (laughs) we'll see what happens.
0: What is, uh um, So one of the things that's been interesting has been uh, how much Duval County has been in play in some of the statewide elections. Like, I'll be honest, I was in the uh, war room for Charlie Crist in 2014, and we were startled by the numbers coming out of Duval against him. Um, And the Republicans had run up a, a pretty healthy score there. And I remember getting the call, I think, around three or four. That day, talking about the performance in Duval was going to offset anything else that Charlie did in Tampa Bay, um, and then obviously, um, you know, it is now turned into a you know, there's this call of of blue Vol, even though most of the elected officials are the local elected officials are Republican, state Senate, legislative, etc. Which way is Duval going to go come you know November right now? Is it going to be closer? Is it going to be you know, not so close.
2: It's a really good question. I mean, it is certainly within the realm of possibility that Trump narrowly loses uh, Duval, and maybe even more than narrowly loses Duval. Um, just as I recall off the top of my head, Andrew Gillum beat Ron DeSantis here by what four or five percentage points. I mean, it was it was a pretty hefty uh, win for Andrew Gillum. Um, so, I mean, and that's the, the dynamic in Jacksonville is that um, in, in uh, low turnout elections, uh, Republicans get elected to local offices, uh, usually pretty soundly. In the big turnout elections, usually statewide and, and federal, uh, the, the elections are a lot more competitive and it's, it's been, that has been increasingly the case um, in the last 10 years. Um, this is not the same city it was uh, you know, 20 years ago uh, or when George W. Bush ran, I mean, this is not going to be a GOP stronghold for a Republican presidential candidate. Um, at the same time, I think Duval, uh, possibly because of the kind of same larger shifts that are happening at with with other kind of urban rural areas, um, you know there there was a time when like I remember watching in twenty sixteen um being shocked at how close hillary clinton was running to donald trump here and early in the night i thought well that's it like she's gonna win florida you can't be a republican and, and barely be pulling out jacksonville and expect to win the state but that is not what happened trump won anyway um and it's because some of the outlying um you know counties are, are that surround duval are just so heavily uh republican now so it'll be interesting
0: um Uh, I just saw a flash that the mayor's going to have a press conference here in about 15 minutes, so I'll get off with you here. But this is a political junkies kind of podcast. Give us a couple of down-ballot races. Um, I know there's not a lot going on in northeast Florida, but I think there's a few going on. What are some down-ballot races in your region that we should, uh, the political junkies should keep an eye on?
2: I mean, the the one uh, in particular that really stands out to me is um, so Jacksonville essentially has what has two congressional seats, um, and one is a safe Democratic seat and one is a very safe Republican seat. The Republican seat is held by John Rutherford. He's a former uh, sheriff here. Um, He's being challenged by Donna Deegan, um, who was a longtime television personality in Jacksonville. She proved to be a very effective surrogate and fundraiser for Andrew Gillum in 2018. Um, She has raised a lot of money already. Now, Rutherford's district is ridiculously conservative. Um, I I don't remember the spread off the top of my head, but nearly half of the registered voters are Republicans, which is just a really staggering um, advantage. Democrats have tried to take runs at this seat multiple times before and have fallen short. This will be an interesting one because if it is flippable, if there is a way to do it, uh Donna Deegan would be the person to get it done. Um, I still think the chances are uh slim, but that will be a really fascinating one. And and honestly, that's the that to me is is kind of the uh marquee race to watch.
0: If there's a wave, uh Donna Deacon one of those people that could be swept in. Like if it is, like I saw the New York Times poll today, which is a national, obviously it's not a statewide, but it had Biden up by 14. And I know what everybody's going to say, fake news, et cetera. But the national polls were accurate uh, in 2016. And, you know, anything, when you've got any candidate up by 14 points, that's either a complete outlier or the candidate is in deep, deep trouble. And I do feel... I said it to Michelle, and yeah, my opinion will change over this, but I felt like Trump had such a horrible weekend, and it wasn't just it wasn't just uh, the rally. I thought the Venezuela comments were like I don't think that they still understand how bad that hurts them in Florida and breaks the the Rick Scott Marco Rubio playbook for how you win Hispanic voters and narrow the margins there. you know, I thought I think the revel- revelations. The Bolton book is one thing, but the revelations about China, again and again, I really think that that hurts them. I think that they would have liked to have wrapped uh, China around Biden or have been strong on China as a foreign policy thing. And when you know we're 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 trading, you know, uh, farm subsidies um, for his reelection, or we're giving up on civil rights issue, or um, not civil rights, when we're giving up on uh, human rights issues. Um, I, I don't know. He just—he looks really bad on the China issue. And I just felt like a com- all of these stories coming together, that long walk off the Air Force One um, happened for a reason. And I do feel like he is down, I don't think 14. I'd say he's probably down seven or eight. I think he's still probably ahead in Florida. I mean, Florida is, you know, I think he's probably still plus one or two just because I don't think the, I don't think, you know, I, I just feel like, Florida Republicans are so much better at blocking and tackling than Democrats are here. So, um, all right, well, I'm going to let you get to this press conference. I've just been talking as much. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, You're at, what's your, uh, you're at Nate Monroe TU. Is that your Twitter handle? Okay, Nate Monroe TU. And do your columns have a regular schedule or do you just get to sound off whenever something pisses you off?
2: Well, they run in print every Thursday and Sunday, but I, you know, depending on it, sometimes I finish them early and pop them up. Sometimes I do kind of throw in an extra one. Um, So I, I get some latitude there, but usually twice a week.
0: Okay. So uh, look for those. I appreciate you coming on and uh, keep up the uh, really solid work over there.
2: Peter, thanks, man.
0: Thank you to Nate Monroe for Hunkering down with us again. He is one of my favorite reporters. I love reading his column. I love just his moxie going at the political establishment in Jacksonville. Um without being trite about it. He clearly understands uh the game and he is uh you know he is a muck-raking journalist at this point. I think that whole team over there at the FTU um they are doing a lot of good work pound for pound. I know a lot of my friends don't always agree with their, um, their point of view, but if you look at their body of work, actually, as they have shrank, um, they're just doing a hell of a job over there. Um, so keep an eye on Nate. Up now, this is a little bit longer than I thought it was going to be, but anytime VanCore comes on, it's going to be 30 minutes. It's like he and I, and what's funny is, he and I talked in the car, co- I was driving home, he and I talked on the way home for a good hour about none of the stuff that we bring up here. Um, and so I love talking with Steve Cor, one of my favorite political consultants in the game. Um, and so take a listen to what he and I have to say about all things on the campaign trail. Coming into consultant's corner of hunkering down with Peter Shores on the campaign trail, the longest name, I guess, of a segment is my good friend, Democrat consultant and pollster Steve VanCor. Steve, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You were made for podcasts, weren't you? I mean, I think Uh, I'm so verbose. Yeah, but you're just a good you're a good podcaster. I mean, I, I it's kind of interesting that this technology has popped up at this. Well, very late stage of your career. <laughs> I, I, yeah, thank you for my t- saying this is a late
3: stage of my career. But I'm a ten thousand hour podcast listener, so that's probably why I've got my ten thousand hours.
0: Malcolm Gladwell would be happy. Um, all right. So, even though this is Jacksonville week on the rest of the pod, I wanted to bring you in because um, the vote by mail issue. Uh, it seems like it is like this. Um, it's this story that is just out there and is not going away. We keep going through elections in other states and they are having issues. We are still wrangling with it in the courts. Uh, Judge Hinkle is still dealing with a lawsuit. Um, I think there was some development this week about um, he rejected a request that there be paid uh, return um, envelopes for ballots. Um, Donald Trump is continuously out there demonizing voting by mail. But which has to be making which has to be making Republican operatives crazy
3: because, as you may recall, the the, the Florida House was taken over on vote by mail by the Republicans in 1994. The uh, they have used it very very successfully for twenty something years now, and it's stunning that the president would come out and say don't do that. And so you're getting a lot of Republican voters saying, oh,
0: maybe I shouldn't vote by mail. Okay, here's the statistic that jumped out this week uh, that has got everybody talking about it, at least in our neck of the woods. Democrats have opened up a 302,000 voter advantage over Republicans in vote-by-mail enrollment. Um, Five months before Election Day, more than 1.46 million Democrats have signed up to vote-by-mail compared to 1.16. By comparison, in 2016, Democrats held an advantage of about 8,800 uh, in vote by mailman. It was mail. dead even, right, right, it was dead even. And that was a major gap to, to,
3: to close it and make it, make it basically even. So you
0: know, there's two schools of thought here, isn't there? This is the Democrats are getting, they are catching up in a Republican playbook, um, or, and I think Ryan Tyson, the pollster, uh, independent pollster was quoted in playbook uh, on top of this article saying, um, This doesn't tell us anything yet. Um, And I think his argument will be that Democrats have simply cannibalized their voters and moved them from Election Day to voting by mail. It hasn't increased.
3: Yeah, and Ryan Ryan has
0: been a leader. Ryan, Ryan has been a thought leader on
3: cannibalization, where you have a three of three voter. That's a voter who has voted in the last three elections, and you simply move them from Election Day to vote by mail but there's a lot of theory about that's good. To cannibalize to so make sure you get your votes in, in hand. But you know we're, we're talking. If you look right now where we are today, you have three things happening in the election season all at once, right? For the primaries, which ostensibly is named as being on August 18th, which sounds so far away. But Peter, we're basically 10 days before Supervisor of Elections starts sending out vote by mail, and their vote by mail requests as a vote as a result of COVID are coming in fast and furiously, and faster and more furiously among Democrats because Republicans paused because the president said it's fraudulent. This could have been a major shift for both parties, but instead it was more of a shift for the Democrats. When you combine that with all the BLM stuff going on, there's a lot more energy uh, among Democratic voters right now. Now, For the general election, what does it mean? Ryan is exactly right. It probably doesn't mean a damn thing because it's June. We're, we're about to head into July. We still have a long road ahead of us. But in terms of looking at the primaries, this is really interesting because you got to keep in mind something else. The political apparatus that moves money through the system You know, is not having their annual conventions, is not having as many candidate interviews. They're trying to get stuff done by Skype, by, by Zoom and whatnot. And so there's fewer dollars coming into the system and the dollars need to be coming in later because there's some estimates that say vote by mail will make up 70 percent think about this for a second 70 percent of the election for these primaries will be vote by mail which means in 10 days you better be dropping you better have already dropped three or four pieces of mail you better be dropping the rest of your mail now getting your digital and your tv up because it's going to be too late otherwise
0: I still want to go back to your original comment, which is that uh, Ryan Tyson has been a thought leader on cannibal- cannibalization. Um, <laughs> that's going to be my pull quote on uh, this podcast. You know, I think uh, all right. Let's let's take it the anecdotal way, which is how scary is Election Day in America going to be this year? Um, and well, it if has I-
3: potential to be really scary for this reason. Uh, with all the vote-by-mail coming in, right? So Mark Early, the Leon County Supervisor of Elections, I was talking to him the other day, and he's had a 40% increase in requests. Broward County is looking at a 10 to 15% increase in requests right now. If that number gets up to 30 or 40%, we will not have election results on Tuesday night. How crazy is that going to be if we're sitting here going Thursday or Friday? Well, the results are starting to
0: trickle in. One of the things that DeSantis signed in over the weekend is a bill that would allow local election officials from across the state to use a secondary system to speed up recounts. Um, And I think it it gives basically the supervisor of elections the option of employing auditing systems that are separate from the machines and software uh, used for the initial ballot counts. And I I wonder that it almost sounds like we're being proactive for maybe the first time in a little while there yeah um,
3: but remember just the, the, the ballots coming back across the state by the tens of thousands are requiring supervisors to staff up with just people to process them but there's no way around it you can use those pitney Bowes machines to count them and log them but they still have to be opened and hand tabulated you know opened pulled out verified for the signature verified for the precinct make sure it's filled out properly fed into the big machine and counted and then distributed, it's going to take a long time. There's no easy fix for
0: this. I think one of the issues that we're going to have is having just basic poll workers and, um, you know, uh, election supervisor uh, employees come, you know, uh, November. I mean, usually that's a way for retirees to make a little bit extra money, but if you're 74, 75 years old, uh, I mean, I would imagine the last place you want to be is a public space where people are literally handling and 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 they've licked things and so forth, and are, uh, and it's being it's being brought to you to do something with. Um, you know, the the bigger problem might be some, for some of the primaries because hopefully by November,
3: fingers crossed, this won't you know the numbers will have dropped significantly. But you're right; it's it's an issue that all the supervisors are dealing with. They're trying to consolidate some precincts. They're putting in all kinds of, you know, the, they have the, the, the face shields and masks. Everybody's got gloves. They're working. They're, they're turning their machine around so they don't have to take the license from you. You can hold it up and scan it. They're doing a lot of procedures to make voting safer. And what's interesting about this, Peter, as we shift to vote by mail, that's that many fewer people who are um, uh, voting on Election Day. So the crowd shouldn't be as long which is counterintuitive, right? The crowds will be smaller, but the vote counting, uh, I think one of the executive orders was to allow the vote counting for vote by mail to begin sooner, because if they have to do it on election day, literally we'll be waiting for Thursday or Friday before we get results, which, which here's the deal. The early ones that will come in that will get counted quicker are going to be the rural and suburban counties. The ones that are going to come in late are going to be the big blue Orlando, Hillsborough, Pinellas, Broward, Miami-Dade, they're going to come in late. Well, guess what narrative that's going to push? Oh, the, 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 they're finding Democratic votes right. in, in Florida. So I'm not predicting good things unless we can somehow ramp up all the, uh, the staffing uh, of these uh, election offices.
0: Well, fortunately, there's a guy down in uh, Broward running the elections down there by the name of Pete Antonacci who I have a lot of faith with. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, <laughs> but I have a feeling um, Broward's going to get its votes counted on time or as as it may be the earliest they're ever late or something like that. <laughs> um, I think that that'll be the goal. Which county do you think is going to be the one that inadvertently releases uh, vote-by-mail results early uh, through some sort of snafu, you know, because not if Broward. they are allowed,
3: left- not, not 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 Broward.
0: <laughs> um, Orange County, Orange County is the unsung hero
3: of snafus that we haven't seen in a while. But uh, I have a lot of. Con- I think Wendy Link's doing a great uh, job in uh, in Palm Beach, and of course, I think Antonacci's doing a fantastic job in Broward County. They're fully staffed. Everybody's talking. They're bringing in uh, support personnel. They're getting excessive training uh they're they're ready for it he wants to be the best
0: so let's um give me your honest assessment here what are republican consultants in florida thinking right now about how to handle vote by mail i mean they're let's be honest the uh, the republican consulting class is still for the most part jeb aligned um or we came up under jeb or maybe a little bit of charlie they're not there are not a lot of Trump folks in there, so I don't know if they buy everything that Trump says to begin with. Are they just disregarding what the president says and still uh, following their campaign plans? Is that, is that I th- what they- I, Well, first of all, I have been honest this
3: whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they're, they're in a difficult position because you know there's only so much you can do with a headwind, right? You can only sail so much into a headwind, you've got a tack left. Attack right. You got to get around it. And the president is putting down a very strong anti-vote by mail headwind, and and undoing to some degree, not completely undoing, twenty plus years of. Remember, it used to be absentee ballots, and they did all their work on absentee ballots and got Republican voters conditioned. On the other hand, the COVID wind is blowing at their back. More and more voters are saying, "Yeah, I need to vote by mail. I need, you know, not not worry." Uh, about what the president's saying. I think what Republicans are mostly concerned about today, and this is like, let's just mark this as July 1, is a lot of game to be played still. But if the president continues to have the kind of numbers he has, you're going to see the Wilton Simpson team, um, the the, uh, Sprouse team, et cetera, shifting to down-ballot dynamics. There's only so much they can do to help the president, to help the very top of the ticket. What they're afraid of, is there will be down-ballot uh, uh, fall-off, and that would be disastrous, right? If Republicans, if it looks like, it's enough, if the election were today, and it's not, I get that, the election were today, there's a lot of Republicans that say, screw it, I'm not coming to vote, I don't want to go out you know, waste my time, risk my life with COVID, uh, and what they've got to worry about is, you know, Senate 39, uh, the Patricia Sigmund uh, uh, seat, and potentially others down ballot. That's what they're gonna be mostly, I think, focused on is shoring up from underneath in terms of getting turnout up.
0: That uh, segment is nine, um, uh, obviously. Nine and Nine and 39. Um, Well, that raises an interesting question, and I wonder, so the Democrats, not the Democrats, I don't mean the Democratic Party because it isn't the Democratic Party that did this, but Democratic-aligned groups, uh, have been touting the fact that they were able to get a candidate in every legislative race, save one, Brad Drake's in House District 5. Um, but a lot of these folks, like I've heard, like one of the people that's running in North Florida is, still lives in Gainesville, and this person over here is never, you know, isn't even registered to vote, et cetera. There's a few of those going around. Is it a good thing the Democrats got a candidate in all of these House races? Is that is that going to spread themselves? Whatever? Peter,
3: I don't Me- want to overstate this, but I can't think of a dumber idea. <laughs> uh, and I have done my share of dumb ideas because what happens is you already have a house caucus that is not exactly overflowing with cash. And the more baby birds you put in the nest, the more they pull away from the candidates that really matter, that really have a chance. Uh, now, that's not to say you don't throw a couple of head fakes here and there. But believe me, I've been on in the caucuses in some capacity for over 20-something years. Those baby birds get listened to, even if it's just a call from the leader, even if it's just a call for staff, even if it's just a little thing here or there, and they tend to take away resources, both time and money, from the campaigns that have an actual shot. Will there be a surprise? Absolutely. There, every cycle, there's one big, oh, that came, remember that guy, uh, I think he beat Scott Plakin, he didn't even campaign, and he won, right? Uh, of course, he lost the next year, and I can't even remember the poor guy's name. But there's always a surprise. But by, by stacking the seats, those candidates and those campaigns expect and want and demand help from the party. And what ends up happening is party leaders, both local and state level, go, well, we'll just have a, a phone call with them, or we'll just do this, or we'll just do that, let's keep this person quiet. And you're putting resources, very limited resources, into races that cannot
0: win. I, I, and I go even more with that, looking at it from the media side. Um, unfortunately, you know, you'll see Tiger Bays, you know, and instead of them focusing on like the Central Florida Tiger Bay, I'm not saying they're doing this, but instead of focusing on the, the battle for SD9 and having Broder face off in a debate against Sigmund and making that a, a real draw, they'll do, well, we've got to do, we've got to do the race for, uh, you know, Senate district uh, who gives a rat's ass and house race, you know, David versus Goliath. And you've got to give equal time. And then we never hear from the people that we came to, to, you know, to see. Same thing with, um, you know, media coverage, you know, you're going to see reporters waste their time covering the democratic candidates and panhandle races when they should be writing about other stuff. You could
3: spend 20 minutes on why that's a bad idea, and you can't give me one good reason why it's a good idea.
0: Well, who put it? Who who put – do we know where this came from just offhand?
3: I I, I do not know. I do not know. They didn't uh, pick up
0: the phone and ask me. All right, just to kind of close the gap, let's just talk about the Senate for a second gary farmer one of your uh somebody that you talk with um i won't make you disclose the nature of your relationship whatever it is right now because i don't know if you can um why can't he just lay up here you know he's got a long shot to to the hole there's no way he can drive the golf ball you know 400 yards he's got to lay up before the bunker meaning if he would just focus on nine and thirty-nine, he could probably win those in this kind of environment. But instead, he starts—you know—the—he's the, the, messing around in Hagen, which pisses off Simpson, and then they start expanding the map on him. And now he's got to defend the JJR seat. He's got a—they—they they put a candidate in Senate District Three. They're making a run at Lorraine Nosley. I don't know how. Credible. I mean, she's a very, very so – that's a, that's, a, that's a head fake. That's a head fake. But go on. But stay focused here, Gary. I mean, right? Isn't that what he should be doing? So
3: I, I still don't understand the layup, which is a basketball term and the ball. Well, no, either... <laughs> no, no, no,
0: no. Laying up in golf means um, – I know what it golf. means. <laughs> you, you don't, okay. You don't, I mean, didn't <laughs> you watch Tin Cup? You don't go for the yeah, hole. Yeah, that's you right. I, I, into I you into the water. You got to lay up before the water and then go, but it takes two shots, meaning he's, he's got to set up Perry Thurston here.
3: He's gonna win going, back the two. Going back, going back to the founding of our democracy, the yeah. leaders who are not, in, in, in not running for president always begin, and I'm telling you, every single one, begin the journey saying, I'm not going for Senate president, I'm not going for Senate president, I know what I've got to do, I'm gonna shoot for three, hope to get one, Never shoot for four or five because I'll be, you know, Hitler in Russia overextending my troops. I'm not going to do that. I get the joke. Um, but invariably, they get a good candidate who's raising good money, and then they check the box, and they go to the next one, and then they go to the next one. And next thing you know, they got 20 in their sights. And, and, and all of the logic gets displaced by the emotion of potentially being the Senate president. And it's hard to blame somebody especially coming into a reapportionment year, it's hard to blame somebody and say, you know, I want you to run to be the you know, leader of 18 when they believe And in this kind of year, in this kind of environment, it's not terribly unrealistic to say there's going to be a couple surprises. They're likely to go the Democrats way. Um, I mean, everything's going bad at the top of the economy is going bad. We got the COVID crisis not being handled well. Uh, You know, we've got Black Lives Matter energizing the the left wing base. So it's a temptation that's really, really hard for the leader who's not running for Senate president to say, let me give it up. Let me just go for 18. Now, if you go back to 2008, 2012, you know, uh, uh, 2016, had the Democratic leader at the time tried to just get one or two. You know where we'd be today? We'd be at probably... Twenty-two eighteen or twenty-one nineteen, but instead we overshoot. We did a last cycle. I mean, Amanda Murphy and Kaiser Enneking were left just gasping for air uh, in the election, and one of them could have won. Amanda Murphy out did was the highest performance seat in the state, and she probably got outspent five or six to one. She overperformed the top of the ticket more than any other Senate candidate. And I- you're right, you mentioned something that nobody seems to be mentioning, which is JJR. In this environment, if this environment stays, he should be fine. But Wilton Simpson could dump five million in there and make a, give him a run for his money.
0: I think that, that I think that that's what they're planning on. I mean, I think that that's what they're planning on doing. I think they will have, you know, they won't say it, but I think that they will have money to blow. I mean, you can only spend so much money in Seminole County on TV, right? Um, I mean, it's not like they're going to be. I, I just I think that they will end up having award chest where they're going to have to invest in some of these other races. You bring up something else and I just want to get on record with you just so you hear it from me first which is I don't think redistricting happens in time for the 2022 election. Um, and it's just a conspiracy theory that I have. I feel like the Trump administration is going to screw up the census numbers so bad and they're going to be litigated so bad that Republicans and Democrats are going to come together and say, hey, wait a second, these numbers, um, we can't redistrict now because these numbers are unreliable. The Democrats will agree with it because they know that they will be screwed on the numbers. Um, And somehow and then everybody gets to stay in office like maybe another two years or some sort of weird agreement. I just I'm, I'm, I'm laying down a marker now. I don't believe redistricting happens in time for the 2022 election cycle in Florida.
3: That, that that I don't believe you. I, I I I of course I believe you think that's what's going to happen. I disagree. However, the elections will still have to be held. Yes. So are they held and everybody in their same seats? Which you you if if your scenario is correct and there's a whole other dynamic that enters into play. Every incumbent senator with a four-year seat will agree with that exactly then they'll automatically end up with 10 years. If you're sitting there and you're a two year, you're like, no, 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 no. I want, I want a 50, 50 chance of getting a four year. So, and, and, and the key thing that everybody has to remember, everybody has to remember is reapportionment is the most, the best part of our democracy because there's no partisanship. That's <laughs> every man for themselves. Uh, there's no hyper party. Everybody votes for what's in their best interest. So uh, everything falls apart, it's hard to lobby, it's hard to even talk to people because all they care about is what's my district going to look like. Even, even the ones who say, well, I know it's not my district, but they all want to know what does my district look like. And to some degree, Peter, even people who are leaving, they end up getting pushed aside as, as when the fight really engages, but reapportionment is always one of those dog-eat-dog, lord-of-the-flies kind of kinda, um, uh, processes.
0: Um, well, we're looking forward to the dog-eat-dog of the rest of the election cycle. It's kind of amazing to think that we are here like, this is not this is apropos of nothing, it's where I'll close with you tonight, but um, I'm a sports guy, I love love sports podcasts and people, you know, we're on the verge of like sports happening in Florida and yet, I can see where it all completely falls apart like, you know, like you're talking about we're going to have 60 games and we're gonna in baseball, and we're gonna bring the NBA to Orlando, and 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 all of these things. It, it reminds me of God, you know, the the quote about you know the best laid plans here. Um, all it's gonna take is LeBron James getting coronavirus, God forbid. And I, I feel like with this election, I mean, it, as we get closer to the election day and ballots going out, I mean, I. I don't even know what the worst-case scenario is here, but I feel like we are going to reach for it. Well, you're, and you
3: keep jumping past the primary. Remember, most legislative seats are over in the primaries, and those are the elections that's upon us now. I mean, you mentioned the Ray Rodriguez, Heather Fitz and I, I don't know. I heard you know, they released an internal poll, but if she's that far ahead and votes are getting ready to drop— how does Rayrod close the gap when voters are getting ready to get their ballots in the mail in nine or 10 days?
0: Uh, and, and, I, don't, you know, what, I don't believe that poll. I mean, just on okay, that, that base, specifically, I mean, I believe, I believe Heather's a very popular individual. Um, mm-hmm. And I, 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 I could, I could see where she could have won had she um, come out. Like I'm, I'm following that so closely. It, uh, and I'm like so much so that I'm following like Heather's Facebook page and she'll have 500 comments on there about why she doesn't love the president anymore. Um, And I don't know. I just feel like that's the one area, a down ballot race with all of the money in the world and all of the tricks of the Republican party at its best. Anthony Pettacini, Aaron Isaac, all these really top level, my friends, top level folks that, know how to get their hands dirty in a primary. Um, You know, I thought it was so striking, you know, just to talk about it. You know, there's a bunch of, like, text messages going out against Wilton Simpson right now, um, and they're dragging Wilton Simpson in into this primary. The FRSCC, the Florida Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, they didn't mess around. They sent out a memo Friday saying if Heather Fitzhagen doesn't fire all of her consultants— We're going to war. And and so like kind of like the unspoken rules of like leaders, you know, like, oh, we're not really worried about that. No, they're they're 100 percent worried. They're attacking. They are they are attacking, quote, liberal Republican Heather Fitzhagen in a memo. I mean, so um, this is not Tom Slade's Republican Party, I guess, is my. my No,
3: but no, no, these these are some sharp people moving with some (laughs) with some sharp implements. But the, the, the issue then is going back to what I said, if every Democratic dollar, every dollar that would have been going to Democrats, there's no new money in the system, right? It's the same apple that you're cutting up. If there's money that's going into, let's just say, union money or whatever, that's one less dollar that goes into nine or 39. And, yeah. and you can't not do that math. And that's my bigger worry, because let's say Heather Fitzhagen manages to win. In 20 minutes, there'll be some there'll be some angst, but she'll be making up with leadership. They'll have stuff they can offer her after the election. And by the way, when the maps come out, Heather, would you like a two? You know, well, they won't be able to determine <laughs> they won't be able to determine two or four because that's going to be done by the courts, like it usually is. But Heather, you have three choices. Would you like us to run you across the state and put you in with a Democratic seat in, in uh, Broward County or, or Palm Beach? Remember, there was a seat like that. Yes. Uh, would you rather be in with another Republican or look at this map? You're in there by yourself. You know, and of allegiances and alliances she may have had, she's like, you know, for the good of the district, for the good of the people, I'm going to pick the map that benefits me. And, and you can hardly blame her. So uh, if, if there's going to be a ton of money going there, if I'm JJR, if I'm Javi, if I'm Patricia Sigmund, I'm a little, gosh, shoot, man, that could have been my money.
0: So, it goes back to my part about farmer, which is he he said the quiet parts out loud uh, and to the wrong people in the wrong setting. Like if if there was some kind of conspiracy, man, I mean, give it five, give her five minutes of where Fitz and Hagen's in the race before that race is all around town. Unless, of course, you know the reverse conspiracy theory is that you know Fitz and Hagen never said any of this, and that this was a Republican on republican conspiracy theory to give cover for attacking Fitz and Hagen, which is like the current since nobody can figure out who's attacking Wilton Simpson there are the loons in Tallahassee believe that it must be Wilton Simpson allowing an attack on him so as to give him cover to attack Heather Fitz and Hagen. that's the crazy theory tonight as as we sit here so yeah uh, i don't
3: buy that I, I think it <laughs> is right. I think it is uh, what it is. Heather didn't think she could win Congress. Uh, she got wooed by Democratic donors, saw her as a moderate, uh, and said, "We'll help you." Uh, it's yet to be seen how much actually comes in. Uh, if that internal poll was correct, uh, and she she pockets a bunch of votes in v by VBM, it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough slog. I would like to see a genuinely neutral poll, uh, not not affiliated. Before I would make an assessment there, but. Now that
0: we've pivoted this podcast over to the campaign trail, uh, we expect to have you on several times in this consultant's corner. So thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, we hope to talk to you again, I'm sure, within the next week or so, uh, about the latest in this incredible election cycle.
3: All right, Peter. Thanks, man. All right, man.